Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is January 22nd, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. <clears throat> Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Tiffany, Doug, Gabby, and Elliot. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello. Hey. Hello. Hi, guys. Unfortunately, we are we are uh, missing Erica again, um, but she will be back with us soon, and so we wish her well, uh, and we will, I think, most likely see her next week. Yeah, she's out um, on a vision quest. She'll be back next week. <laughs> cool. All right, well, uh, today uh, our topic is uh, willpower. <clears throat> so we thought that because this is right around the time, uh, there's this phenomenon called Blue Monday, which we have been discussing and trying to figure out exactly when it is, but I, I believe it was like the third Monday of January, which is when um, – most people's New Year's resolutions start to fail uh, and is uh, allegedly the most depressing day of the year. Um, so, yay. <laughs> um, but we thought that uh, today would be a good time to talk about willpower and attention. And so that is our uh, our topic for today. And we have a bunch of different kind of facets of, of this that we're going to go over Um you know, talking about addiction, about diet, um, just about plans, you know, resolutions, things like that, how to keep your aim uh, and how to uh, kind of stay on the uh, on the straight and narrow with what you actually want to do. And also, you know, finding out what it is that you actually want to do. Um, a lot of us, myself included for sure, um, <clears throat> have a hard time even figuring that out in the first place. Um, so we're going to go over all those things. Uh, but let's start off a little bit. We have a uh, a few clips today, and I'm going to start with one uh, from Kelly McGonigal, who is a uh, a health psychologist <clears throat> who teaches, I believe, at Stanford. Uh, she wrote a book mm-hmm. called The Willpower Instinct, um, and this is these clips are from a talk that she gave at Google. And so we're going to start off the first one. It's just kind of an introduction to willpower, and then a little bit about uh, sleep and how that relates. So we will be back and kind of kick off our discussion uh, right after this. I want to just start with a little definition, my definition of willpower or willpower challenge. And uh, I define a willpower challenge as something that is basically a competition between two parts of yourself. Neuroscientists are famous for saying that even though we have one brain, we actually have two minds. And we are completely different people depending on which mind is active or which systems of the brain are more active. And so a willpower challenge is anything where those two versions of yourself have competing goals. So, for example, there may be part of you that really wants to eat a candy bar for your snack, and then there's a part of you that actually has some longer-term goals. You're thinking health, you're thinking weight loss, you're thinking bikini season, whatever, and maybe the banana seems like the better snack. And again, both of these choices 
uh, you might be drawn to by different, different parts of your mind or two different versions of yourself. And one of the things that um, has really influenced my work with willpower is thinking about it in terms of what's going on in the brain. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. The fact that you could be the very same person, but depending on your mindset, depending on your energy, depending on your stress levels, your brain is going to meet this willpower challenge in a different way, and you're going to end up making you know, one choice today and one choice tomorrow. Um, so, uh, as mentioned, uh, this book is based on a class that I teach at Stanford called The Science of Willpower. Those are our actual students. I'm not sure what I said. That was funny. But those are actual Science of Willpower students. And um, I created this course because I was going around trying to teach people how to be more productive, how to improve their health. And everywhere I went, people said, oh, we know we're supposed to do that stuff already. We just don't want to do it. And there was this really interesting fundamental gap between what people wanted and what they thought they wanted. That is, people were very identified, um, you could say, with this version of the self. People felt like deep down they were the person who wanted the candy bar. And this other person who wanted the banana, like, who is that? That's not really me. Um, and I realized that people didn't just need to know uh, what is the right thing to do or the healthy thing to do or tips for stress management and productivity. They needed to feel like this person. And they needed to know how to be that person as the default rather than walking around always feeling like they had to, they had to uh, resist this core self that only wants immediate gratification or never wants to do anything difficult. And the first intervention that I want to tell you about is actually a sleep intervention. The main intervention was trying to help people sleep more or sleep better. And it was people who had a very very serious willpower challenge. These are people who were recovering from addiction to drugs and they were in a substance abuse recovery program. And half of the people in the standard care were assigned to take a mindfulness meditation training that was designed to help them improve their sleep or sleep more. And so the first thing I want you to take a look at on this graph, this is minutes of sleep per night. And you're going to think this is insanely optimistic, I know. But uh, everyone's starting around seven hours. And we're going to improve on seven hours. And that, that probably seems an uh, impossible dream. Okay, so everyone in the group was starting around seven hours, and what the researchers found was that just doing a little bit of meditation every day, breath-focused meditation, uh, increased sleep time to just over eight hours a day, and the control group had a little bit of deterioration to slightly less than seven hours of sleep a night. Okay, now that's not the interesting finding. I mean, it is nice to know that if you meditate for a few minutes a day, you will sleep better and get more sleep. But what's interesting is how that, that um, change in sleep time then made... Uh, these recovering addicts uh, impervious to relapse. They were stronger against relapse. And this is a very high correlation, 0.70. The increase in sleep time predicted resistance to relapse with a correlation of 0.70. Getting one more hour of sleep a night suddenly made it a lot easier for these recovering addicts to resist the temptation of falling off the wagon. And interestingly, the, um, the number, <laughs> I never know, it's going to bounce off the screen, right? I should point at the screen. You guys are tech experts. Uh, the number of minutes per day that people meditated also predicted resistance to relapse. So there were really two things going on in this intervention. There was getting more sleep, and there was also something about the actual practice time. And it wasn't a lot, but it was something like 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day. And both of these things, sleep and meditation, were, um, were giving people more willpower for one of the biggest willpower challenges. 
So when you're getting less than six hours of sleep a night, your brain is actually unable to, uh, to recruit the systems of the brain that you need to be that better version of yourself. So that was kind of interesting and a good introduction to the, the topic for today. Um, what do you guys think? Have you ever noticed that, that you have more willpower if you're well-rested? Oh, yeah, especially when I do night shifts five times per month. I think my experience with them is, like, trying to recover from those on a permanent basis. Yeah. I think I have more everything when I get proper sleep. I have better concentration, better focus. I don't forget things. Uh, I'm in a better mood. All those things will help if you're, like, trying to go towards a goal and exert your willpower. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I, uh, I find that those old habits and and sort of addictive behaviours, uh, I'm a lot more susceptible to giving into them when I've had, um, say, anything under sort of seven and a half hours. Um, mm. Whereas on the days that I'm well rested, um, I feel like I can actually get something done in the day. Mm. Mhm. Yeah. Definitely. I like what you yeah. said too when about you're not the rested, two. When you're oh, not ahead, rested, sir. it's easier to fall into that trap of like, oh, I'm so tired. I just want to sit here and just zone out or watch a movie or do this or that. That's not really productive. But when you get proper rest, you know, you can focus more and do things that need to be done rather than just sit around and, you know, zone out and feel sorry for yourself because you're tired. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's easier to give into yeah. that kind of self-pitying type uh, attitude where I'm too tired to do anything. I'm too tired to make any efforts. So it's okay for me to give into these urges. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> self-defeating behavior. Yes, I think part of my New Year's resolution was like uh, come up with a plan so I can recover from night shift more quickly so I can go back to normal, you know, schedule or, you know, projects or just like enjoy the day better. Mm. And um, I think it has been working, yes. Uh, and my plan is like, you know, when I do night shifts, I feel like I lost an entire day. And then I try to like overdo the day after the night shift instead of resting. And um, and it's a really bad quality doing, so to speak. It's really like tired, so... I just decided just like, you know, okay, I'm not going to turn my computer. I'm just going to do like some, you know, far infrared sauna, for example, while listening to an audiobook, um, And then, you know, just do a bath with Epsom salt or chlorine, mm. uh, sodium, uh, magnesium chloride. And after that, I feel like I was born again. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can catch up with everything with a better quality. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's just I it's unbelievable how you know how you're so tired that you forget even to do basic stuff for yourself. You know? yeah. yeah. Well I think that's important. Um a, a definitely an important thing is that uh you, you need to take care of yourself. You know, a lot of times we have this drive at us to do, 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 get things done, like this has to be done and like worried about deadlines and all this kind of stuff. But I think um taking care of yourself is actually um fundamental to actually getting those things done and that you're much less likely to be in a place of panic if you're if you're kind of taking care of yourself getting enough sleep you know eating properly all those kinds of things um having a little self-compassion i guess goes a long way 
Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like, to um, to start off our, our discussion a little bit, um, <clears throat> what are we considering to be self-defeating behavior? Because I know for me, like, I have plenty of, uh, you know, habits and addictions and things like that that I have been working on and still working on, um, but mine are different than other people's. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. I'm really laid, laid back, like, probably to a fault. It's... Um, <laughs> it's hard for me to get uh, angry or to express anger. And so if I do express anger in some way, I don't feel racked with guilt necessarily like it's something that I failed myself at. I'm actually kind of like, hey, I actually did it. Um, But for other people, you know, there are some people who have problems with uh, expressing anger too much. And so then if they do that, they might feel like it's a setback. So, you know, whereas so there's the obvious ones, uh, if you're an alcoholic, it's taking a drink. If you have an eating disorder, it's either binge eating or starving yourself. You know, I'm curious, what do you guys have some other examples of um, self-defeating behavior that might not be readily, uh, you know, uh, observable? Well, I know for me, one of my big self-defeating behaviors is procrastination. Um, you know, when I, I there's something that I need to get done, and it's kind of always riding in the back of my mind, but I'm avoiding it. Um, so it's kind of like avoiding avoiding what needs to be done. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, you can kind of define self-defeating behavior as anything that you do to get in the way of your goals. You know, if you have some kind of goal that you want to achieve, then anything that you do that's kind of hindering that would be considered a self-defeating behavior. That's the way I look at it anyway. Yeah, Yeah, that was a good point, Doug, like anything that gets in the way of what you want to do. Mine is more like you come across or I come across some new information, I get like super, super excited about it, and then after a few days the excitement dies down, and hence my interest goes. Like if it's like if I don't have like a fire lit under my butt at all times, it's kind of hard to do stuff. And it's hard to kind of plug away and do something even when you don't have that chemical rush. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I have a similar thing to for sure. It's like uh every once in a while there's something that I get really interested in, almost to the point of obsession, probably often to mm-hmm. the actual point of obsession. And then <laughs> when that wears off um, you know, I, I, I veer away from that. And a lot of times, too, I'll make an excuse for myself, like, oh, well, that was that was helpful. I learned about it. Now I don't need to learn about it anymore, which, mm. you know, I guess yeah. everything is unique. Sometimes that is true, but oftentimes it's not true. It's just me losing my motivation and then, you know, falling into laziness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, uh, like, the pattern is often that, you know, while I'm kind of researching and looking into something, I'm really excited about it and learning because learning is fun. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of digging into topics and and looking up things and checking out different links and that kind of thing. But then when it comes time to actually do something with that information, when it kind of shifts from the learning phase into the more application phase, that's when I tend to trip up. And suddenly the energy doesn't quite seem to be there as much. Yeah, I think we've all had that moment where you just click like you intended to do something, you want to do it, you're doing it, you're happy, you feel fulfilled, you know, like all everything is, is clicking on all on all cylinders or firing on all cylinders and you really like are feeling it. Um so I think everybody kinda has a sense for what that feels like. 
And I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of like when you're you're actually, uh, I guess, again, everything is unique, unless it's some uh, uh, manifestation of obsession, um, you, you are actually in touch with your your true eye, so to speak. And so that, mm-hmm. that made me think, um, Doug, you had mentioned, you know, like it's when you have a goal. Well, what is the what is the you that has the goal? You know, and that's that's one thing I think we should talk about today is like where where these goals and resolutions actually come from, um, you know, and when can we recognize that they're they're healthy or worth pursuing? Um, and you had mentioned we were you know when we were talking before the show um, these different systems of thought, um, the fast brain, the slow brain, system one and system two, and um, uh, would you mind just explaining that what you had said earlier about the decision happening uh, before you actually make the decision consciously? I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, no, it is. It is very interesting. It kind of goes into what uh, Kelly McGonigal was speaking about in the uh, in the audio clip there, where she was talking about how um, people, if they felt like their goal wasn't coming from themselves, you know, they they that the real self wanted to eat the cookie, but the the, the it was some other kind of uh, um, not authentic self that wanted to go after the banana. Um, it, it's kind of, it, it relates back to that. And um, before the show, I was talking about a, um, a, a study that was just um, put up in the form here where they kind of took a look. They did like brain imaging scans of people who were um, making decisions. And what they found was that the decision was actually made seven seconds before they were consciously aware of um, their decision. So it's kind of like um, their consciousness, uh, what you would consider kind of their waking consciousness or ego or whatever you want to call it, um, wasn't aware of the decision that they were going to make, but the decision had already been made by a subconscious part of themselves. So it's kind of like it's showing where those decisions are actually coming from. You know, we'd like to think that we have complete conscious control and willpower and... um, uh, conscious awareness of, of our decisions, but they're actually coming from somewhere else. And it kind of comes uh, down to the whole um, system one, system two. I don't know if uh, uh, all our listeners are going to be aware of this, but there's a, a book by, uh, what, what's his name, Kahneman? Um, yeah, Thinking Daniel Fast Hamilton. and Slow. Daniel Kahneman, that's yeah. it, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Thinking Fast and Slow. And he talks about how there's kind of two uh, two systems of thinking that happen in us where um, there's a system one, which is like the subconscious, uh, well, subconscious essentially. And that's where kind of all these decisions are being made. And then there's system two, which is more the conscious awareness and where we like to think that all our decisions are being made. But actually um, most of us, most of what makes up you is actually the system one. And system two is just kind of riding on top of that and comes up with narratives to explain why they made the decisions, which actually rarely have anything to do with why the decision was actually made. I don't know if that all made sense. Yes, it makes sense. In short, we've spent most of our lives asleep, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't take, it takes very little conscience to go, to go through daily life, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something that, you know, we, we talked about uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza on the, the show before, too, is uh, his book, uh, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And he talks about this kind of from a neurochemistry, neurobiology type perspective where, you know, we've got all these kind of neural connections in the brain that uh, just get enforced over and over and over again because we keep on, you know, doing the same kind of pattern of behavior. And it actually takes consciousness from somewhere else to observe those 
connections and those decisions that we're making, those patterns of behavior that happen over and over again. Um, so it's kind of like you, you, we walk around like these automatons. It's, it's not very nice to think about because we'd like to think we have this free will, but um, <laughs> we walk around just like these machines constantly, like, you know, the same input comes in, therefore we, we process it and um, react in the same way every time. And that to kind of get beyond these ingrained patterns, we need to kind of uh, become more conscious of that, self-observe, and that it is possible to actually change those behaviors, um, but that it takes awareness. Yeah. And it is interesting. They have, uh, I was reading a study about mind wandering uh, and how it happens so often, like even students when they're trying to read a book in a study, and um, they have to, uh, they, have, they are monitored for how often they, their mind starts to wander, and it's like pretty often. And researchers mm-hmm. say that, you know, mind, wa- mind wandering taps into the same circuitry, it's the same brain wiring that people use when they're told to do nothing. You know, so mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> the brain is always an idol. Yeah. Was that from that article, paying attention to not paying attention, where they sampled yes. a group of students about their random thoughts and they asked them like eight times a day what they were thinking of, and like 30% of the, 30% of the time they weren't even thinking about what they were actually doing? They were just <laughs> yeah. out in la-la land somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 30, 40% of daily life. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. interesting point that Kelly McGonigal talked about in that clip he just played about there's two parts of yourself, though some esotericists would argue that there's probably more than two parts of yourself, but to keep <laughs> it simple, just to say there's two parts of yourself and you have one brain but two minds and they both have different goals and people get sidetracked because they identify what the more slacker part of themselves and not the part that wants to actually achieve goals. And they kind of forget their values overall. But she also said something else interesting where um, the traditional view of willpower is forcing yourself to do something that you don't want to do. Mm. But uh, her version, Kelly McGonigal's version, is kind of uh, related to what you said earlier, Doug. Um, You're making choices in line with your highest goal, even if there's a part of you that doesn't want to, or if it's difficult, or if it's boring, or if you don't even know if you'll succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that yeah, really... I, I think that... Sorry, go ahead, Elliot. Yeah, I think it comes down to um, to having the awareness that there is a part of yourself, or say, um, as, um, as they termed, you have these two minds, I think it comes down to having the awareness that one of your minds is um, automatically going to go for um, short-term pleasure, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and it's being aware of that. And so when you are faced with these decisions to, um, I guess, use your metacognition, which is to think about the way that you're thinking, mm-hmm. to question where, where that's coming from. So it comes back to, to what you were saying, Doug, about system one and system two. It's about having that constant awareness that, okay, maybe I am making this choice because it is in line with my goal, or am I making this choice because this brings me either one, um, immediate pleasure, 
to my senses, or mm-hmm. um, two, uh, because it's the path of least resistance, or, um, you know, that there's always a possibility that there's some hidden motive there, you know, and you have to mm-hmm. sort of be on your toes with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of it comes down to goals and having, you know, having an aim. Gurdjieff used to talk about, about needing to have an aim. Um, and it's kind of like if you don't have an aim, you don't have that goal, then you're just kind of, uh, you know, bouncing around from, from quick decision to quick decision. It kind of requires that you, you, you make this aim, you make this goal, and uh, so then you, then you have something to work towards and you have, you have a means of evaluation too. Because if you have a goal, then you can look at a, a behavior and decide whether or not it is furthering your goal. And, uh, you know, I think making, making that aim is one of the most important parts of it but it also comes down to what part of you is making that goal. You know, you can make a, a, a kind of snap decision at, at a moment where it's like, man, i got to stop eating so much chocolate. This is too much. But then the very next day, you're eating chocolate again. And it's like, have you, have you really made that a goal and an aim, or is it just kind of a passing thought? You know, it's kind of like it, it requires, requires more energy, I guess, put into more investment, put into, into having a goal so that you know – you know whether or not you're you're working towards it. Yeah, goals that are very abstract, they're more you know they're harder to achieve. You know, it's like it stays in the abstract form, and uh, and that's you know, and then you find the motivation or your unconscious process is just sabotaged you know, the whole aim. But sometimes it helps to have very concrete things, uh, mm-hmm. like a um, you know like a certain plan, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, like okay, this afternoon I'm going to clean the house, you know, and, <laughs> and say your aim is just to be more constructive, um, more creative, uh, clean space for you know in your environment for everybody to enjoy, and you know, so that could be more concrete and that's more doable. It's much more easier, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Something yeah. that you actually value. Like, it's important for you to, you know, be healthy or to to keep a clean house because you know that it has certain benefits, and you want to reap those benefits, so you have to set a goal in order to reach that core value in yourself first Mm -hmm. before you just start making goals willy-nilly that don't really have any kind of weight in you. You just do it because you think that this is how you're supposed to be, but if Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, come from the heart, I suppose you could say, then you'll have a harder time trying to maintain that. Oh, I was just going to say that's something that's interesting to me is like what you said about reaping um, the benefits, and we're talking about you know uh, short-term satisfaction and uh, and long-term achievement of of goals. That I I bet our listeners kind of have a, a sense of what this is like, um, but I know for myself. The, if you and if you want to talk about like feeling good, um, that the actual pleasure that comes from achieving a long-term goal, even if the long term is just like a week or two, um, mm-hmm. is much more much more potent uh, than that short-term satisfaction. Like, sure, you know, mm-hmm. satisfying yourself in the short term, quote unquote, feels good, but if you really sit back and compare the feelings between the two, when you do achieve the long-term goal, you're like, I feel freaking amazing right now. You know, like this is awesome. <laughs> 
And uh, but it's, it's so it's probably because it's so much harder to get to that point. You know, you've worked harder, and so the the reward is that much greater. But I mm-hmm. think that there's a disconnect when we think about I want a reward for myself, and so I'm going to satisfy myself in the short term. We forget that the reward for the long term goal is actually much greater. Um, you know, because there's that disconnect between those two minds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You think about it like achieving long-term goals is like changes your whole being. You know, you have to build build changes consistently, and um, that has the capacity to rewire your brain. Mm. Yeah, and I I think that's an important part. And this whole idea of of two two minds can be very helpful in that respect. You know, it's like. Um, it, it's pulling yourself out of that kind of automatic brain, that automatic, uh, you know, day-to-day um, decisions always made essentially along the same lines, and actually, you know, analyzing that and and, say, and seeing where, you know, really sitting down and kind of thinking about this sort of thing or meditating on it, and and kind of seeing where you're being tripped up on your goals. You know, if you really like, you know, first of all, really internalize the goal, um, as we've been saying here, like really kind of uh, make sure it's something achievable. Um, make sure that you, if it is abstract, you have more concrete steps to uh, to be able to uh, achieve it. And then actually, like you know, to take a, a close look at your day-to-day behavior and where things are actually tripping up. And I think it's good not to necessarily uh, beat yourself up about those kinds of things because that can be another trap in and of itself in sabotaging your goals. Like really getting down on yourself for having you know watch Netflix instead of you know working on some project. Um, you know, to kind of uh, be a little bit more um, understanding and say, okay, I tripped up there. You know, what can I do next time to maybe um, maybe be more in line with my goals? Mm-hmm. And also, when people, you know, fall off the wagon, you know, in their self-defeating behavior, it does help um, to engage the conscious mind, you know, the, the, the higher consciousness centers, like in the prefrontal cortex, it does help. One of the articles was saying that it does help to like see yourself from another perspective. And mm-hmm. I remember reading a book, uh, one of the psychology books, that you know, an exercise of imagination was like picturing yourself um, from outer space. You know, you see yourself mm-hmm. in the country that you live, in the problems that you're having right now, and uh, that has the potential, you know, to engage. Um, cognitive processes that, you know, just look at the wider picture, it makes you feel less, like, um, well, less funky, less, like, self-defeating. It makes Mm -hmm. you have a wider perspective also because, okay, you see the world, and then you're you're aware from reading stuff (laughs) that all these problems are happening at the same time in other countries, and uh, it just helps to click everything into perspective. You know, I, I, have you guys tried this exercise, like, you know, picture yourself from seeing from above or something hmm. similar? Yeah, something close yeah, I've to done that. that. Uh, yeah, I've done that. Not, yeah. Yeah. Not oh, necessarily ahead, from Not outer that. space, but kind of like picturing myself as if I were in a movie, like the Tiffany show. And <laughs> just watching what I do and watching what I think and not necessarily identifying with what I think, but just noticing it and saying, oh, that was an interesting thought, or why did you do that? That was interesting. Uh, 
kind of distancing yourself makes you a little bit more neutral and you're less to kind of fly off of the handle emotionally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed for myself, like, um, and this is a fine line to walk to because it can also be self-defeating, but making fun of it sometimes works mm-hmm. for me. Um, you know, if I'm feeling misaligned somehow, uh, I'll be like, well, these these are essentially first world white guy problems that I'm experiencing right now. And it's completely, completely ridiculous. And I'm, a, I'm essentially an asshole, you know, for feeling bothered by this. Uh, and then uh, And then it goes away pretty quick. But that's a fine line, too, because you want to be careful about, you know, mocking yourself. Uh, that can also be self-defeating if you're really trying to achieve something. Uh, and it can turn into um, self-castigation and, you know, shame, guilt and shame uh, fairly mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah. So it's, <clears throat> it's important to keep a, a light heart about it, I think, as well. And that's we, – we have a couple more clips from Kelly McGonigal. We'll play those a little bit later, but uh, one of them is, is about that. You know, it's about uh, – the you know the guilt and shame and feeling self compassion uh, if you do fall off the wagon with whatever you're talking about you know we're not just talking about uh, areas of addiction you know we're also talking about anything that you want to do uh, in your life you know and this this applies to you know to move forward through life um, to achieve goals to help other people to be part of a community and uh, to be more whole uh, in and of ourselves we need to achieve goals. You can't just be at a stasis you, your whole life. You know, you essentially then mm. you, you end up uh, a vegetable later on. Um, <laughs> and so it's it's important in all aspects of life to have this drive to move forward, but it really is one of the hardest things to uh, to maintain. And that's kind of why we're talking about that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think what a lot of people um, come up against and one of the main problems that people face when they uh, when they do actually set an aim for themselves is either it's um, it's too abstract, like say something like um, they'll say as a New Year's resolution, okay, I'm going to become healthy this year, or you, you know something so abstract as that. Um, and I think it can be very difficult for someone to sort of measure their progress against that. So. Um, so setting yourself an aim uh, uh, as, as abstract as that, it's going to be very difficult to, to sort of um, determine whether you are actually moving forward. You, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so in that sense, I think it's very important, and it really should be emphasized, because in my, in my experience anyway, um, it, it certainly works a lot better um, to actually set yourself small goals that are encompassed within that larger aim, so, for instance, I would like to become healthy. Okay, so so you go through and you break down each different point. Okay, how you know what 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 aspects of my life are what I would call unhealthy? So, okay, uh, to lower the chocolate consumption for me, <laughs> um, to maybe do some more exercise, um, to get cold adapted. You know, all, all of these different things. Um, I guess it's completely indiv- individualized to each different person. But if they can sort of work through and analyze exactly which parts of their life that they need to change uh, or that they, they need to work on, then, um, then by making those small steps every day, um, they, they could sort of, um, they may not have achieved their, you know, total aim of being healthy, but they can say, well, you know, I haven't eaten chocolate in two weeks. That's really good. 
I'm working yeah. towards that. And I think that is something that would um, help people from being being uh, sort of disencouraged. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I did actually, I, I, just as a, a, a more kind of concrete real life example, I did kind of one of my New Year's resolutions was to get my, my diet back on track because, um, you know, I just noticed I was kind of drifting on certain things and kind of maybe letting in a little bit too much um, that shouldn't be in there. So I said, okay, for the month of January, no potatoes, no nuts. That was like, that was, that was my kind of more concrete version of getting the diet back on track, you know, instead of being more abstract about it and saying, I got really, I got to get my diet back on track. It's like, okay, well, what can I do specifically? No diet, uh, no potatoes, no nuts. And, uh, that it's, it's been going pretty well, actually. Like I, I haven't touched that stuff in a while. I'm not even craving it. So, um, yeah, that's just kind of like a, a real life example of what you're talking about there, Elliot. And then that yeah, and it's something measurable. Yeah, it's something measurable. You can see it. You can see that you didn't eat any nuts or you didn't eat any chocolate for the whole month of January, versus mm-hmm. something like, oh, I want to be healthy. I mean, what is healthy? What does that look like to you? Mm-hmm. So if you you come up with these, you know, measurable goals that are you can apply to everyday life, and you can actually see as time goes by that you've accomplished that, then it kind of strengthens your willpower to keep going. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Um, I think, no, I was just going to say that as we were discussing previously on the show, like um, being healthy is a big one for a lot of people, New Year's resolution. But most people, a lot of people find themselves uh, with strength and will as they read more about the diet, how crappy is their food, how are they getting poisoned, how addictive is sugar. And Mm -hmm. in that sense, it's like, it's not much a matter of lack of will, but it's like all these foods are like playing games with your brain, like basically like they're forcing you to eat that way because Mm -hmm. they are addictive. Mm -hmm. So, yes like reading and getting informed to be a good part of it, you know, getting mm-hmm. the, the appropriate knowledge. Yeah, definitely. And that like kind that of brings idea. me to what you said um, earlier in the show, Doug, when you were talking about that study where the the decision is made seven seconds before you actually consciously decide to do something. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you know, when we first started experimenting with diet and cutting out grains and sugar and gluten and all that, reading all that stuff and then thinking to myself, oh, that makes sense of why I felt this way or, you know, why my stomach ached you know, a couple hours after I ate a dairy product or something like that and reading all this stuff. And it all made so much sense to me, but I, haven't, I hadn't actually, you know, implemented it yet. Then when I finally decided consciously that I was going to do it, it was just so much easier because, in a way, my subconscious decided already mm. that I was going to go that route. So when I finally decided consciously to do it, it, was, it wasn't it was that difficult to actually cut those things out. Not to say that it was completely easy, but it wasn't, like, a real hardship for me. Yeah. No, for I me, had a similar as well. experience. For me, yeah, I was going to say a similar experience as well, like, you know, pastries, bread, for me was like, you know, impossible. Life without bread was impossible. I cannot conceive such a thing. And then <laughs> after researching about it, reading it, it was just like little monsters appearing on the bread. <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> 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 it was much easier to let go. 
Yeah, and for me, it was kind of, uh, it, it's almost like I reached a tipping point with it. I was reading all about it. I was dabbling, you know, but not sticking with it for too long. And then a, a, a certain point came in my life where I was like, you know what, this is a perfect time to just completely implement all this stuff and, and actually go for it. And at that point, I guess because I had done so much research and I'd looked into it and thought about how I would do it, um, implementing the changes themselves wasn't that difficult to process. So I think that that's exactly what you're saying, Ted. Like it, it really, you know, it, it's it's once you've made the decision and thought about it and kind of done your research, implementing the changes themselves isn't really the hard part. Yeah, the knowing yeah, why thought, you're doing it is probably the most important part. Not just doing it just to go along. It's kind yeah, of like you're feeding that information to that subconscious mind. You know, you're gathering all this knowledge and all this information, and that's going into that system one. Um, so that once, and you know, thinking about it, imagining it, that sort of thing, kind of programs that system one to act in a new way. So then all the, the little uh, trip-ups that would usually um, uh, come in and interfere, um, they, aren't, they don't as have as much power, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that if if you if you if you had actually done like adequate research on, say, for instance, something like bread and and gluten products, um, it would take a lot of willpower to actually carry on eating it. Do you, do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like it would be really hard to just keep eating it once you know how bad it actually is. So perhaps it doesn't even take that much willpower, willpower to give up those really bad things from your diet when you actually know how bad they are, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important, too, like we were talking about having situational awareness and self-compassion uh, to realize, too, that these things take quite some time. Um, because we can, or I know I can, fall into the trap uh, many times of being like, well, I'm just going to fix this right now. And that mm. is rarely, rarely ever the case. Um, like maybe 1% of the time does that actually ever happen. Um, but, you know, like talking about the diet, um, for me, I, it took me years um, before, like, because I was actually reading and understood, intellectually understood, the uh, the negative effects of uh, gluten and sugar and, uh, you know, grains, for instance, um, be, uh, at least like two to three years before I actually got on track with being really good about it. Uh, and I still, you know, fall off the wagon. Uh, and so it's like it, it's hard to maintain that constant forward momentum, even though you have an intellectual understanding. And I find that's maybe another metaphor for these two minds is an intellectual understanding of something and like a deep kind of emotional, actual understanding of something. Um Mm-hmm. And I heard it put once that uh, the word understand is essentially like standing under uh, if you reverse the, the parts of that word. And so when you understand something, you are you actually support that knowledge. You stand underneath it. Uh, and so in that way, you um, you kind of see it from all angles and you support it with your actions, which is mm-hmm. which is kind of like true, true understanding. But, you know, it's, you can you can intellectually understand that something is bad for you or is self-defeating and still go ahead and do it um, and then come back later and be like, wow, I was totally mechanical while I was doing that. Like, what was going on? I wasn't even thinking. And then that happens over and over and over and over. And I think it's important to for people to remember 
that, uh, you know, it takes time. Um, and mm -hmm. so like, like Doug, you were saying, you know, establishing the goal is actually understanding what they are. Um, it's, it's important to have some kind of a constant reminder, whether it's a, uh, you know, a poster in your, in your office or in your room or, you know, note cards around your house or something along those lines or a habit that you inculcate into your daily life that continues to remind you about why the, you know, the reasons behind what you are, what you're actually trying to do. Um, and the, uh, the, the situation itself too, you know, it's like, um, for recovering alcoholics, you know, let's say like you're trying to quit drinking, but you're not trying to quit smoking. So you still got to get your cigarettes from this, you know, from X shop, but in X shop is a wall of liquor. It's like, it's probably mm -hmm. not the best yeah. idea to keep going to that <laughs> shop, like go to the grocery store or somewhere else, you know? Um, so it's it's important to uh, understand the situation too and the triggers that are around the behavior that you want to change. Mm -hmm. And understand also how automatic your behavior is, like how asleep you are from all the cognitive research that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, understanding intellectually, emotionally, system one, you know, has powerful emotions like you know, we can call them molecules of emotion, in quotes of the book was that was written by Candice Bird. And she goes into detail about all this research and how, you know, how strongly it is wired into ourselves. It is literally like going against uh, the flow, you know, to to have some input of willpower. But also, like we were research, well, like we were reading before um, and the article that we published in thought, it's like conscious uh, will, uh, willpower is... Uh, some studies say that it, that it is an exhaustible thirst. Others say that it is not exhaustible. It is not finite. And uh, how it is for each person, well, it depends on their, on their belief system. So hmm. do I believe I need a break, that I can do this right now? Probably I will not have enough consciousness, enough, enough will to do it then. Yeah. Do I believe I can do it and push it through? I have a breakthrough. I will have a better chance. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too. There's been studies that have shown that even when people think that their willpower has been exhausted, that there's actually a reserve there that um that you actually do have more than you than you think you do. So, uh I I thought that that research was really interesting too. Um on the subject of uh what you were just talking about, Jonathan, about um like for instance going into um an alcohol store um to buy cigarettes and you're you've got a you're recovering from an alcohol addiction it it's not a very um a wise thing to do because you can obviously you can trigger um those those addictive behaviors when you're in that situation um on that topic i uh i wanted to mention i've i've just basically um downloaded a, it's um it's like an extension for the web browser say if you um if you use the internet browser google chrome um it's an extension for it and it's basically called um it's called stay focused and um and what it does is you you, you can if you if you if you're anything like me then you have a problem with procrastination um for me it's facebook I find, um, say I'm on Facebook, I'm, I'm reading and sharing articles, and then I just get taken off track. 
And sometimes two hours later, I, I can look at the clock and think, you know, what have I been doing for the past two hours? There's nothing mm. to show for it because I've been browsing on Facebook. Mm. And um, and I got to the point today where I just thought, you know, I need to do something about this. So, yeah, this application, it's called Stay Focused. Um, focused is spelled um, F-O-C-U-S-D. It's, it's missing the E on the end of the focused. And what you can do is you can basically just list websites. So say if you've got any particular trigger websites, um, for some people it might be YouTube or Facebook or, or whatever it is for each different person, um, you, you, can, you can basically type in the website and then, um, and then there's some settings on there and you can basically like, um, you can choose how long you can have on that website um, or in that day. So you can say every three hours you're allowed 10 to 15 minutes on that website and then it basically locks and so you can't change it that day. So basically, from now on, when I click on Facebook, a timer comes up, and it, it you know, it's counting down from ten minutes. But that's, I thought that was a really, really clever thing, and um, yeah, and I thought it, this is really going to benefit me because I, I can't spend hours on Facebook anymore because I know that it's a problem. So I just thought, if there's anyone else who's, you know, who's procrastinating on the internet, I mean, I guess for someone who 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 had um, maybe addiction to pornography or something like that, like this would be a really, really, really beneficial thing for them to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it kind yeah, of goes yeah, into yeah. a um, uh, an article that was actually published on Thought called "Why We Make Plans But Don't Take Action and What to Do About It," and it was written by James Clear on jamesclear.com originally. And he actually tells a story about Victor Hugo. Um, apparently, um, he, he had uh, committed to writing The Hunchback of Notre Dame and uh, with his publisher. And a year went by, and he hadn't made any progress on it. He hadn't done anything. And apparently, he was quite the socialite and would go out and, and do all these you know different kind of socializing type things. And that's what was kind of standing in his way from actually doing it. So what he ended up doing is taking all his clothes and locking them away somewhere. I guess he had a servant or something like that who who wouldn't let him have access to his clothes. So all he had was basically, I don't know, like a robe or something like that. So he had no choice, but he he couldn't leave his house because he had no clothes to actually go out in. So this was like a step he took to um, actually force himself to kind of get down to work on this thing. And uh, apparently he ended up, uh, you know, publishing the book two months early because he had nothing to do other than sit in his room and actually work on this book. So, yeah, taking those kinds of steps is very, very interesting because it's a, uh, it, it's a way of kind of like forcing yourself not to give in to those little programs that would rather procrastinate. And also yeah, it, it makes me think of the... Uh, well, there are all these applications to blog websites and stay focused. That's a great one. Great one. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the uh, the Ulysses Pact. Um, you know, where Ulysses, uh, you know, when they could hear the, uh, the siren song, um, asked his, his shipmates to tie himself to the mast, uh, mm. so that he, you know, and no matter what I say, do not take me down. So even as he was yeah. begging to be taken down, they, they had promised not to do that. And it's a, it's, you know, it's a pact that you make with either yourself or some kind of external factor. It can be friends or family. Um, and you say, look at this point, I'm, you know, at some point in the future regarding X thing, um, I'm, I'm not going to be myself. And so I, I need, you know, an external force uh, to restrict me from being able to fulfill whatever that is. Um, and that's, 
you know, that, I think that works well for a lot of people in different occasions. It's worked well for me in the past um, for a number of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. You need to know yourself well enough to know what your triggers are so you'll be prepared in advance like Ulysses was, but can you imagine the superhumans that we would be if we could do that all the time without having somebody having to tie us to the mast or using a an app like Focus? I mean, that would be incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It would be in a different world. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of but figures, guess, you know, on – oh, I just like on the, on the world stage, you know, like um, mm-hmm. thinking about uh, any – any head of state, really, but specifically, what comes to mind is uh, is Putin, Vladimir Putin. You know, and he's he's been doing his thing uh, in Russia, trying to rebuild that country for more than ten years now. And just imagining the the level of willpower that that takes, and kind of Gabby, what you said about how there are these theories that willpower is actually an inexhaustible resource. I think there are certain people in our world that exemplify that. Um, mm. You know, and we see that and are like. Play, how, you know, how do I do that? Like, if we were, if we were all, mm-hmm. if we were all that focused and determined at, at any given goal, it, the world would be a lot different place. Um, but uh, you know, unfortunately, we're not, and so we're left with these, uh, you know, um, downfalls and, and restrictions that we have on ourselves that we have to overcome on an individual basis. Yeah, I I think so much of it comes to really knowing yourself, and it's kind of really, really hard to get into that unconscious part of yourself. Some people would say it's impossible, but that's where, you know, bouncing things off of people, looking at your behavior, networking with other people to get to know yourself and to get to know your triggers, and then using whatever tricks that you can come up with to stop you from doing certain things that you know that you shouldn't be doing, like using that app or metaphorically tying yourself to the mass, and you can use those things for a certain amount of time until you strengthen your willpower, until mm-hmm. you really don't need them, and it'll just be inside of you to do what's right at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That seems like a very lofty goal, but I guess that's kind of <laughs> what being enlightened is. <laughs> <laughs> every little well, act, every little step counts. That's, I yeah. think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And uh, that often, you know, action, you know, as you do stuff and you get feedback from your environment, that changes your subconscious processes. Like, for example, a big one for me was that I was, you know, a poor speaker or that I'm unhelpful. And then, you know, I started to do more um, seminars, for example, uh, teaching classes, areolas, or, you know, just to act here and there that I could that I could see, you know, that, that there was a possibility and opportunity to do. And mm-hmm. uh, that was great, you know. It was, like, a great experience for me, and uh, people liked it. And as you get that feedback, and I said, yeah, I felt like, you know, like the, my subconscious process of being unhelpful, you know, were melting away. It's like it's not true. I'm getting mm-hmm. feedback from my mind, from my environment that I'm being really helpful. Mm-hmm. So that's an example. <laughs> yeah. There, well, there was a really interesting article actually on uh, saw it. It was originally on Mark's Daily Apple by Mark Sisson, and it's called "Overcoming Hidden Obstacles on the Path to Achieving Your Goals." And I think that's a, that's an important point that there are these kind of hidden obstacles. And, you know, if we look at things simply, you know, like I need to eat less chocolate and then there's triggers that make me eat chocolate, it's more of a surface level kind of thing. 
But mm-hmm. I think once you start kind of working towards your goals, what start to come up are these more hidden obstacles, the things that are much less um, obvious, kind of these, these uh, features of personality or features of the self that aren't um, readily recognizable, but that, that kind of affect your entire life. So, you know, the, the um, obstacles that he talks about in the article are things like comparison, fear of success, um, the victim fatalist mindset, um, the captive character. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of these ones where it's kind of like these might not be readily apparent, especially to yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you kind of are like you set a goal of being more healthy and you set these concrete steps um, to become more healthy, but you have this kind of ingrained uh, belief that you don't deserve health or that you're not good enough to achieve health, then those things are you're going to start having all these little um, sabotages kind of come in that might not be obvious why they're, they're happening. You know, you might not actually be able to kind of just look at things and go, oh, okay, you, you know, I'm, I'm eating chocolate when I shouldn't be eating chocolate. It's like there's something deeper there that maybe mm-hmm. uh, has more of an overarching effect on your entire life. Um, and I think really getting to the bottom of those things takes a lot of conscious work. Um, it'll take things like uh, meditation, doing the Aerolis uh, breathing um, program, uh, really kind of um, analyzing these things and kind of getting, you know, maybe even like going for some, some kind of like talk therapy or, or body work or something like that to try and get to the bottom of these things. Um, and this can be like a lot of work. Um, you know, it's not just a simple matter of, oh, I didn't keep my New Year's resolution. It's kind of like this is affecting my entire life like a belief that maybe I don't deserve to have anything but the bare minimum, so I'm always broke, mm-hmm. you know, and those, if you, if you hold those beliefs, then that's exactly what you're getting over and over again. So one way of kind of like looking at these things is kind of like analyzing your life and seeing things. If you're a person who always is, is short on money, you know, barely has enough to get by, is constantly, uh, constantly broke, it's like that's a, that's a pretty deeply ingrained program. You know, that's something that um, is coming from kind of the deep levels of yourself. And it, it's going to require a lot of, of looking at and might not um, respond just to kind of bulldozing past it with willpower. You know, there's, there's more that has to be done there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That, you know, the ingrained, <clears throat> I guess you would call them psychological issues mm-hmm. that we each have about different things. You know that that take much more uh, effort to overcome than, you know, it's well not like an act of willpower is a, a simple act of effort, but like you said, it just takes it takes more work, more time. Mm-hmm. I wonder. If and I guess also. Time, uh, I guess also oh, go ahead, Elliot. Uh, oh, okay. No, I was just going to. Um, I was actually just going to bring it back to the work of um, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, and um, and how like what you just said Doug um, about you can't just basically bulldoze (laughs) bulldoze past it with willpower Um, and I I think that definitely applies because um, what what you may think that you're dealing with um, say if you've got a a particular way of thinking or feeling um, and it manifests in a particular way each time and say you observe that um, I think what what can also happen is that you may um, you may think that you're dealing with a particular manifestation of say a thought process or 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 a way of feeling, 
but actually um, you just it, it, it gets covered up with something else or something else takes its place. So you mm. might feel that you're dealing with something, but then um, but then something else might take it take its place. Um, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about, Doug? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I think and I think that's a very good point. In fact, Gurdjieff um, said that when you first see something, don't change it, because his his point was that if you just kind of bulldoze past with will, willpower. Um, well, like let's take an example. Let's, let's say somebody um, note like you know starts kind of doing self observation, and realizes that they're kind of a jerk, you know, that they're kind of blunt with people, and that they set a goal to kind of be a nicer person. Well, you know, they might force themselves to have more pleasant interactions and kind of like force a smile and and try uh, not to kind of be so blunt with people. Um, and that you know th- what if they're not actually dealing with the core issue there. So they're kind of like, you know, forcing themselves to act superficially nice. Well, people might start to say, you know, that guy's really fake. You know, that guy doesn't mm-hmm. really seem very genuine. So it's, I, I think Gurdjieff's point was that if you, if you try and make these changes without fully understanding it or without working at it on a core level, um, it, it, it might just cause these changes where it's almost like the energy just gets diverted into something else. And you're not... Um, you're not really, again, not dealing with the core issue and, and making just these superficial changes that'll just, you know, you know, you might not be a jerk anymore, but you come across as really inauthentic and, and fake. I don't know if that, that's what you're <laughs> yeah. talking about there, Elliot. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was exactly it, Doug. That was, yeah, that's what I would have liked to say. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, it highlights the importance of, you know, how it has to be uh, like a holistic approach, goes hand in hand. Like, you have to it is self-observation, understanding the core issues, but also making, you know, efforts, constant efforts to try to change your behavior, you know, and especially getting feedback from, you know, a network and the, or the environment, you know, how you're coming across. So the important thing is to know yourself, and you cannot really know yourself from introspection alone. You really need to get feedback from out there, from people. Mm. Nobody can see himself or herself accurately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, expect to fail from time to time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's go to another clip here from Kelly McGonigal. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Tiff, you just said the expect to fail thing, and, and I'd like to play that, but I want to do this other one first. Like we'll we'll do the uh, the failure expectation a little bit later. Um, but this one is specifically about uh, the idea of feeling bad or like feeling guilt and shame over um, uh, falling into something that's self-defeating and uh, kind of how to uh, deal with that. So this is about five minutes and uh, we'll come back right after this. Okay. So let me go on to the next experiment. So the first experiment, which is get some more sleep. Second experiment, I want you to think about a recent setback you had or a kind of a willpower failure. Maybe it was not eating the healthy thing at lunch. Maybe it was not doing your exercise in the morning. Maybe it was spending all morning long following links that had nothing to do with your project. Okay, so I want you to think of a recent time when you had some kind of willpower failure. Does anyone need to borrow one of mine? You have, you guys got one? Okay. So my question for you is, do you, do you think that feeling bad about that, 
presumably feeling maybe a little bit of regret, a little bit of guilt about it, a little bit of self-criticism about that. Does that help us improve next time? Does that, can that be a real source of future willpower? Raise your hand if you think that feeling bad can actually be a real source of willpower to improve next time. Hands up. And how many of you think that that feeling bad is actually going to be a further drain on willpower? Yeah, great. Maybe some of you have read that chapter in the book. Um, so I want to talk now about some of the research that tends to surprise people the most. When I first started teaching this class, this was the research people argued with. Like literally I couldn't get them to be quiet in the classroom because they were so convinced this could possibly be true. This is a study looking at whether it's better to let yourself off the hook for your mistakes in terms of preventing future willpower collapses. And so this particular study I'm going to talk about in a little more detail brought in people who were trying to manage their weight and eat healthy. And they gave them an immediate willpower failure. They showed up for the study and they were forced to eat a donut. And they even had to choose the flavor of donut they were going to eat so they would feel really complicit in this willpower failure. Uh, and they had to drink a whole glass of water too so they'd feel a little bit uncomfortably full. Okay, so we have everyone, dieters here, having now a willpower failure. They just ate this donut. Uh, and the next part of the study is a taste test where they're given a lot of different types of candy and they're said, you know, um, we want you to evaluate all of these candies, so please just eat as much as you need to, as much as you want, so that you can evaluate these candies. Uh, and of course, these candies were all pre-weighed so that experimenters could find out exactly how much candy the dieters ate after they had blown their diet with a donut. And in this particular study, the researchers had a hypothesis. They thought that, that the guilt that dieters experience when they fall off their diet actually really undermines future self-control. Uh, and so they wanted to create an intervention that would basically get rid of the guilt and shame that people feel when they make a mistake. And so in this study, half of the dieters were randomly assigned to receive a special letting themselves off the hook message. So between the donut eating and the taste test, an experimenter came in and said something very simple. They said, by the way, we've, we've realized now that some people in this experiment feel guilty after eating the donut. Okay? So there was an opportunity for people to recognize they might be feeling guilty. Second part of the message, um, we want you to remember that actually everyone indulges sometimes and we ask you to do it. So there's a kind of putting it in a broader perspective. And the last part of the message was a simple plea. Please don't be too hard on yourself about it. Okay? So very simple. You might be feeling guilty. Remember, everyone does it. Don't be hard on yourself about it. And then they went on to the taste test. And what the researchers found was that the women who had been given the, um, the self-forgiveness message ate less than half as much candy as women who had not been told, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal, which is exactly the opposite of what most people think. Most people think you make a mistake, you have a willpower failure, and you start saying nice things to yourself about it, that this could only lead to disaster. It would lead to licensing even more indulgence. Um, and yet, that's exactly the opposite of what was found in this study, and not just this study, but in a lot of different studies now. This is one of the, sort of the strongest pieces of, uh, of theory we have in willpower research right now. Um, that is, the harder you are on yourself when you have a willpower failure, the more likely you are to have the same failure again and the bigger it's going to be when you do. For example, one study took a look at, um, at problem drinkers and had them keep track of how much they were drinking and how bad they felt the morning after. 
What they found is that the people who were the most self-critical and felt the most ashamed or guilty about drinking the night before wanted to drink more immediately when they woke up and also drank more that night and the next. There was something about the self-critical nature, the shame and the guilt, that was driving people back to the very thing they felt bad about. So that was kind of interesting. You know, it's definitely... That's not what I had thought for a long time, but uh, I can say that I've experienced that. Or if I get too hard on myself, it's almost like now that I've failed, I might as well continue failing. That's, I guess, Mm -hmm. where the subconscious thought thought line goes. Yeah. I think it it kind of comes down to kind of a, a core belief situation where, you know, if you do fail at something, you start beating yourself up about it. It's almost like you accept that you are... Like it's like you identify with that failure. You're somebody who can't do it. Um, you're somebody who who uh, cheats. You're somebody who um, just doesn't have the willpower. So then, trying to make those choices again when you have this kind of core belief that you are a failure um, is it makes it all that more much more difficult, and you're much more likely to just resign yourself to the fact that this core belief that I'm, I'm somebody who can't do this. So it's it's like if you are a little bit more compassionate and say, you know what. This isn't about me. It's like everybody makes mistakes every once in a while. Everybody cheats. Everybody, you know, it it, it kind of puts it into a different context where it's not like something that you identify as yourself, like you are a failure. It's more like I deviated from my path momentarily. So it makes it Mm -hmm. uh, a lot easier probably to get on that. That, That's kind of how I see it anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say something similar, but I think it helps also if you look at other people around you. I think people are much more judgmental and harsh on themselves as they are Mm -hmm. to, like, their friends or people who confide in them that they made a mistake. It's not like you're going to berate that person and say, oh, you're you're terrible, you're never going to make it, but you (laughs) do that to yourself. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, at least some people wouldn't do that. Some people would. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I think I think guilt has, you know, it, it has its place. Um, it's just for a lot of us. Um, it sort of um, it becomes a bit too. Um, what's the word for it? I've lost the word. Um, it becomes too intense. You know, it, it takes control. Mm-hmm. Like. If, if you behave, mm-hmm. if you behave in a way that is considered wrong, and you hurt another person, or you, you know, you cause some 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 stress to others, or you do something that's wrong, um, then you know it, it, it's healthy to feel like a, a healthy sense of guilt, because mm-hmm. guilt is what helps us modify our behaviour so that in the future we can change the way that we behave, and we we hopefully don't make the mistakes over and over again. So guilt can, mm-hmm. can, you know, really has its place. It's really important. But the problem is, is for a lot of us, um, that guilt spirals into shame and self-hatred, you know. And I think a lot of people are addicted to um, to the suffering. It's almost like an addiction to the to the suffering, to the um, to the to the self-abuse almost. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. It's like those emotions are there for a reason. You know, it's important to recognize that you've made a mistake and that, that this isn't good. But but it's kind of like either using that emotion to 
to modify your behavior and, and correct the problem or dwelling on it and internalizing it and saying, I'm just a bad person. Exactly. It is very difficult also to sacrifice one's suffering. A man will renounce any pleasures you like, but he will not give up his suffering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that comes back that to the man. whole molecules of emotion thing and that we kind of get uh, addicted to these emotional states. You know, the, the, yeah. the familiar, um, even if it's unproductive, is more comfortable than uh, the unknown. Yes. And a good step forward is to recognize, okay, I'm addicted. It's just like you know, alcohol anonymous to say, okay, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's something that Gabor Mate talks about, too. Oh, I'm just saying that, you know, when, when Mate talks about uh, self-identifying and saying, you know, instead of saying, I am an addict, um, say, I am addicted, you know, which is more mm-hmm. of a description of your current state than an identification with the, with the character of an addict. And, um, you know, speaking specifically to addiction there, not necessarily to other failures of willpower uh, in daily life, but um, it's important not to identify yourself as that character um, because, like you said, you can, um, in, in a very weird, like sort of masochistic subconscious way, hang on to that yeah. and say, well, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm an addict, this is how I behave. That's a very good point. It can feel very, like, hopeless when you're in that state. But I'm always amazed when I always make a little effort or a little action, how different the state or how different my state um, is. Like my whole cognitive um, cognition changes. And then I see backwards and I say, well, that was not that difficult at all to, you know, to, to get out of that state. It's just like it took a little effort to do something different. But it was doable. It was nothing like I felt when I was hopeless, desperate, you know. It's just amazing how it works. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that rings a bell to any of you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it does get really comfortable get being in that depressed state. I know I've been there before. And I don't know if you guys experience, like, this voice in your head that kind of comments on what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember like feeling down at various points in my life and it's like, I'm just going to stay down. You know, this is the only way I can focus. This is what I'm used to. And, you know, I, I just can't be any better. So I'm just going to be depressed and just mope around. And that's just what I'm going to do. And the voice in your head will say, well, you're just doing that because it feels comfortable. You just don't want to try something different. Mm-hmm. But, um, there's also been research like if you change your behavior or change your posture or any kind of like change your emotional expression, then that can also have an effect on your mood. So mm. I've tried before, like if I'm feeling very down, I'll force myself to smile or force myself to do something that I really, really enjoy. And then, you know, after a while, I don't feel as bad as I did before. So sometimes you just have to push through and try things and think of it kind of like an experiment. Mm -hmm. I know people don't want to give up their suffering, but, you know, a lot of people like trying new things and, you know, reading something and then applying it to their life and seeing if it'll work for them. And then they'll kind of be surprised that sometimes the stuff does work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay. Questioning those narratives can be very helpful too. You know, like the, you have, you might have this narrative like, oh, I'm too tired to make any effort right now. And it's like, well, am I really? You know, can you, can I question that? Is it is that true or is that just something I'm telling myself right now? So, yeah, then doing these experiments to, to test whether or not that's actually true or whether it's just a negative uh, narrative that you, you've kind of adopted for the moment. Yeah, I mean, doing those experiments too, like, oh, today was such a hard day, I deserve a nap, yeah. you know. And then yeah. something happens, like somebody asks me for help and I, you know, I feel very tired and, you know, but I start helping out. And then I forget that I was tired and I, like, do all sorts of things. And then the night arrives and I'm okay, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not tired at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, having enough energy is, is often a big one for me. Like, like I don't have enough energy to do this right now. I don't have enough energy to to make this effort. But when I actually question that, I'm saying, you know what, I'm going to try. I'm just going to give it a go. I'm not going to go take a nap. I'm not going to, you know, go off and, and, and do something unproductive. I'm going to actually uh, try and see if it's true that I don't have enough energy for it. And almost without fail, it's, I do have the energy there. I'm just for some reason being stingy with my energy and, and, and deciding that, uh, that I've done enough already and that I don't, I don't have enough to keep going forward. So I, I, th- I think it's a really important step to kind of like really question these things. Yeah, that makes me think too of like how we define, you know, what is, what is a reward, what is a treat. Um, of course, it's, it's individual, you know, given whatever the thing is. But like as an example, um, I think like I've had a really hard day at work. And so when I get home, I'm going to have a beer as a treat. But when you look at, you know, the negative effects of not just the alcohol, but all the other ingredients that are in, you know, beer or, you know, plug in whatever variable you want there. Um, and you realize that it's not actually a treat. You're not actually doing yourself a favor. Um, mm. That can change your thinking as well. Um, but, of course, you know, it's different for other things too. Like sometimes a nap might be an actual appropriate treat that's good for mm-hmm. you, um, depending on, <laughs> on what you've done and what kind of energy you have. So I, I guess it's, it's um specific to the situation. Absolutely, yeah. I'm not trying to say I never take a nap. The bionic Doug who never sleeps. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's yeah. a line there's... between being guilty appropriately and using that guilt to to make changes and totally beating yourself up. And there's a line for forgiving yourself versus coddling yourself, too. Mm. And sometimes I think that people can, I know I do, fall into coddling myself a little bit too much mm. and not pushing myself. So I think we have to be careful with that one. Mm-hmm. There was something that I was uh, that I was thinking about, actually. Um, and it was on the subject of willpower and how we can perceive um, willpower in others or perceive the willpower of others. Um, and I was thinking, like, I know for me, okay, uh, in my house, I I have a tendency to let it get really messy and <laughs> and I'm quite lazy, lazy in that respect. Um, so for me, I would, um, it would take willpower to force myself to do the cleaning, to do the washing, 
to get everything spick and span, okay? Yeah? Mm. Whereas on the flip side, you've got someone with OCD, so they're obsessive and compulsive, <laughs> and it manifests as cleaning, yeah? yeah? So their daily routine is to clean the house five times over. So, <laughs> so, so it would take them willpower to do the opposite of, of how, how, how I would manifest willpower. You know, like I would have to clean and that would be my, um, my willpower being used. Whereas for them, if they have the urge and the obsession to, uh, to clean a house five times a day, then it would take willpower to limit, limit it to once a day, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And understand uh, so why I, they're doing that. Well, well, exactly, yeah. And I guess, I guess the point was, was that... Um, I guess you can't. You, it just it just highlights the fact that you can't apply um, one rule to every single situation, like with mm. a specific outcome. You know what I mean? Like, um, and you, you don't necessarily. Um, or I figured, how how could you actually determine whether someone was acting out of willpower or whether it was, um, you know, say 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 an OCD tendency or something something like that. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. a buffer, you know? Yeah. But if? Yeah. You know, willpower, no, I... how, how do you determine if it was willpower versus like a buffer or like a, you know, a typical automatic behavior, you know? Yes, yes, yes. That's that's what I mean. How, how, how are you able to determine whether it's just your automatic behavior or whether it's a genuine um, acting out of willpower? Yeah, no, I have a a good real life example of that actually. My my one roommate is what I would call a doer. You know, he is constantly in motion, constantly getting things done. Like he goes from one project right to the next one, right to the next one. He doesn't sit still. And if I was to compare myself to him as as to like productivity wise, I would fail miserably because I'm just not like that. Um, but it would take a lot of effort for him to actually sit still to actually not do anything, to not accomplish anything. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's like where, it, where does the willpower actually come in? He's not willing himself to be productive. That is his natural state. So, yeah, I, 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 know, I hear exactly what you're saying there, Elliot. Totally, that's a great point. I think it comes down to if it's in line with your goals or your aim. And how does it affect the people around you? Is it making everybody else crazy? Is it making you crazy? And you have to kind of look at every situation according to its own context. Um, mm-hmm. I lost my train of thought, but, yeah, that was the point I was trying to make. <laughs> Is it making you crazy or not? Are you doing something that, you know, you're so sick of doing the same thing over and over again. You're sick of making the same mistakes over and over again, and you get that kind of heat building up in your gut sometimes, I can feel, or you know you have to do something, you have to make some kind of change. Do you have that feeling in you? Then you have to apply that to whatever situation that you're in and kind of move towards, you know, going towards the middle and not being at certain extremes is basically yeah. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Yeah, I think it comes down to uh, to self observation, um, self awareness, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know what? You know, are you just in your regular daily pattern, or are you actually making an effort? 
you know, even if your yeah. regular daily pattern might be, um, you know, helpful in some ways, it might be something that doesn't need to change necessarily. But, uh, I mean, there's always more awareness that can be brought to everything. So I guess it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a matter of kind of staying in, try, making efforts to, to, to observe and be aware of yourself and not be in um, just complete automatic patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, if you guys are cool, I'm going to play a, uh, another clip here. <clears throat> um, also from uh, Kelly McGonigal's talk, um, and this one I think is quite interesting. She talks about the, uh, the future self and how we relate to that. And just a little bit of setup, um, <clears throat> because the, uh, the clip was, was too long to include this initial setup. But on the, on the board, she had a, uh, a diagram, <clears throat> which was essentially a set of Venn diagrams, you know, the two overlapping circles. Uh, and in one circle was your current self, and in the other circle was your future self. And the first part of the diagram was where two of them were totally separate, so they were side by side. And then gradually, as it progressed, they became closer and closer together until they were like 90% overlapping, the current and the future self. And so the idea was, you know, it, on the far left of the diagram, you had no idea what you were going to be like in, you know, say 20 to 30 years, and you had no relation with what your future self would be like. And on the other side of the, uh, the extreme was that you felt like you totally understood your future self. You felt consistent and you felt like you knew what you, you know, that you would still be like what you are now in that, in that future self. So she asked the people in the audience to um, kind of uh, raise their hands as to which uh, part of the diagram applied to them. And some of them said that they had no idea and some said that they felt like they had a very strong idea. So that's the, the setup for this with and we'll, we'll come back right after this. Okay, um, so that was just one, that was the intervention, that was the experiment, but I just want to point more broadly to some of the research uh, looking at that circle graph that I showed you. And it turns out that people who, um, who believe that there is more overlap, that they're more closely related to their future self, have a lot more willpower for different types of uh, willpower challenges. Oops, didn't mean to do that. Uh, so the first thing is they're less likely to procrastinate in general and less likely to be late. I mean, one of my favorite findings from this research is that um, people who, had, who felt like they were less similar to their future self were also more likely to show up late for the experiment or skip it completely to just blow it off. Um, and that was a kind of interesting finding. Uh, they also are more comfortable, um, or sorry, are more likely to make ethical uh, decisions at work. So people who think that the future self is more different, like a total stranger, they're actually more likely to feel good about betraying a colleague at work if it helps them advance in their career. They're more likely to keep money that they found even when uh, they might have an inkling who that money belongs to. Um, and that's kind of an interesting finding because we could, we could understand retirement, you know, future self, um, but it seems like this, this uh, ability to disconnect from the long-term consequences of your choices actually primes you to be that more impulsive self even when it doesn't really have anything to do with your own long-term benefits. Um, and then also looking at real-world outcomes, not just an experiment, but you look at what circle people choose and how much money they have, their assets, their home, their debt, their wealth, uh, and people who feel closer to their future self actually have, uh, have more assets are more likely to own their home outright, more money in the bank, more retirement savings. And so this is a real-world finding, not just an experiment. 
and they're also more likely to do things that, that don't have a payoff immediately, like flossing and exercising, um, but that will be good to protect their future self. So with that in mind, one of my favorite uh, willpower boosting strategies that you can do that doesn't really take any willpower at all is to get to know your future self. And one is to write a letter from your future self to your present self. And you can do this in a number of different ways. So one way is to just write to your present self about who you are, what you're doing, where you're living, what you care about. Or you could even write a more closely defined letter uh, that, that looks at some challenge you're dealing with now. You know, maybe you're struggling to quit some addiction or uh, spend time with your family or just something that it seems like it's, it's not working the way you would like it to. And you could write a letter from your future self thanking your present self for doing it and describing what it was you did and why it mattered. Um, and research suggests that this kind of letter writing from your future self can actually give yourself more willpower. Okay, so here's the second future self exercise which kind of gets to that. And I call this going back to the future. Um, and this is the exercise of ima just imagining yourself in the future. Studies show that just imagining yourself grocery shopping in the future, okay, not, like, not anything even relevant to your goals, but just grocery shopping, then ends up helping people make better decisions in the present moment uh, uh, that's going to lead to payoff in the future. Because you can actually imagine it, and you can imagine what would be on the shelf, and you know what it feels like to be pushing a shopping cart. Um, and there's something about making the future real that gives us more willpower, kind of independent of the content, what you're thinking about. Um, but there's also studies showing that you can imagine specific futures related to your willpower challenge, and both good sort of future realities and negative future realities can be very motivating. So in one study, they had people who wanted to improve their health to imagine the consequences of not making a change, like really vividly. What that, what's that going to be like? What's it going to feel like 10 years from now if you don't make this change? And they had another group think about the positive consequences of making the change, and what would that be like, and how are you going to feel? And both of those sort of future thinking ended up um, increasing the, the good health behavior in the present. And so I would say, you guys have seen Back to the Future too, right? Have you guys seen Back to the Future too? You know, he goes into the future, and there's like a really bad future and a really good future. Okay, at some point, that, that reference is not going to work anymore. <laughs> okay, here's, um, so we got two more interventions. And this next intervention, I just want to take a poll. So we're talking about visualizing things. Um, if you had to guess which would be more helpful for finding your willpower, do you think it's more helpful to imagine or visualize yourself failing, or is it more helpful to visualize and imagine yourself succeeding? Raise your hand if you think imagining failure is going to be more helpful. Raise your hand if you think imagining success. You guys are such typical Americans. Okay, um, that's what everyone thinks. So um, actually, it turns out imagining failure is way more helpful than imagining success. Not that imagining success is always bad, but imagining failure is better. So let me tell you about this one intervention and then some of the, the theory a little bit more broadly. In this particular study, they took women uh, from young adult to middle age, a little bit older adults, uh, all of whom were not exercising at all, and all of whom had the goal to exercise. And some of those women were randomly assigned to your typical, it's good to exercise, here's why uh, you should exercise, now think about your goal and imagine yourself doing it, very typical. Uh, and, and the other half were randomly assigned to um, a, what they called an obstacle condition, where they had to imagine themselves failing. They had to ask themselves, when are you going to not exercise? What is the obstacle going to be? When is it going to happen? Uh, and 
and uh, what are you going to do if that happens? And they had people write about that every single day. They had to write out when are you going to not exercise, what are you going to say to yourself that allows you not to exercise, when's it going to happen, how's it going to happen, and what are you going to do when you start to recognize that stuff happening. And so the women were becoming kind of detectives of their own failure. And every day they revised what they were writing based on what they noticed. I didn't exercise because I told myself, I'll do it later, I'll do it later, I'll do it later, now it's time to go to sleep. Or I didn't do it because I got so busy at work and then I didn't have my sneakers so I didn't do it. And they became very clear about how they fail. And they were able to predict future failures from that. And uh, here's what the results were. It had an immediate effect of doubling the amount of time they were exercising. So the very first week they started to predict their failure in this way, they doubled to 102 minutes of exercise a week. And that's getting pretty close to the amount of exercise that you need to have very serious health benefits, both mental health and physical health. Uh, there was a much smaller improvement here in the group of, uh, of women who were given the standard, you want to exercise, exercise is great, let's do it. And uh, 16 weeks, so four months after that study, the uh, women who had been predicting their failure had maintained and were exercising twice as much as the women who were in the basic, let's exercise, here, here's why it's good. So yeah. this is the thing that always blows people's minds. Um, there is a lot of studies showing that tracking your success leads people to um, slack off in the long run, but nobody believes it. Um, so you've probably heard how important it is to keep track of your success because we feel really good when we're able to write down that we did something, right? You know you feel really good. You're like, yes, check it off. Some people make to-do lists just so they can check stuff off. And we know how good we feel when we're able to write down and record our successes. And we mistake that feeling good as motivation to do more. But uh, a number of studies show that when people are reminded of their success and take note of their progress, they then are much more likely to do something inconsistent with their goal. Wow, that was great. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take note of that because it makes total sense. Like, you know, you anticipate how are you going to fall off the wagon in every single detail, and then you're ready for it, and then it happens mm -hmm. less and less. Yeah. It's like charting all your possible failures beforehand so that then you're kind of aware of them and, and can be um, can maybe take steps to avoid them. Yeah, and you won't yeah. be shocked when it happened and fall into some kind of shame spiral. You'll know mm. that you expected it, and you'll know what you can do to ward it off in the future. Yeah. That's using your higher cognitive function. I totally yeah. like that. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, that was really good, yeah, John. Really good, It's very interesting, I think. And I've noticed the exact opposite for myself, too, um, in that when I anticipate that I'm like, let's say it's a, there's, there's these two types of willpower, like I will and I won't. So you're either determining to do something or you're determining to not do something. And for me, usually if I'm determining to not do something and I think about it ahead of time, like, okay, I'm not going to do that. When the time comes, I do it anyway. And <clears throat> I notice it's, it's a, it's pretty standard. It's not a hundred percent of the time, but most of the time that's what happens. So it's like, setting myself up for failure by imagining the success. And I think it's really interesting to instead, you know, imagine the failure and chart it out and, and write it down. Like, you know, let's say it's, uh, you know, we, we mentioned alcohol before, like I'm going to go to the store. Uh, I'm going to give in to my, you know, willpower failure. 
I'm going to buy whatever it is, you know, vodka, beer, whatever. And you write all that out and then you anticipate that being a failure. And then when it comes, you're much more aware of that possibility. Uh, and you're not shocked when you feel that way and you're like, okay, well now I'm not going to do this. Um, I think that can apply to pretty much anything. Yeah. Uh, was also really interesting in at the beginning of that clip um, when she was talking about people who are less kind of identified with their future self. Are, it seemed, it, what it, she didn't actually use the words, but it seems like what she was saying is that they tend to be less uh, empathic overall, that they're much more kind of self-serving and more likely to uh, keep money that they found, even if they know who it belongs to and that sort of thing. That I, I found that very interesting. Um, that kind of like if you're if you're more in touch with your overall goals and your um, your, your picture of your future self, then you're much more likely to 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 have empathy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also reminds me of an. Uh, oh yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say. I think it's important to point out too that she said a little bit later in that lecture that she was not. Um, saying to never chart your success, um, her point was to do both. Um, mm. It's not like only chart your failures and never chart your success, but she said, you know, to chart your success and your failures both. So, you know, anticipate your failures and also um, chart your successes when they happen. And then in that way, you get kind of a rounded perspective on the whole situation. Mm. Like, a, yeah, mm. like a little balance, anticipating attack, you know, and preparing for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also well, I, I noticed that to... myself. Like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, <laughs> no, I noticed this in myself. Like, where she said that tracking success leads people to slack off in the long run. Like, at one time I had this goal because I was like just going nuts on pistachios, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Okay, I'm gonna, you know, not eat pistachios." ever, which was really <laughs> unrealistic goal. But it probably went like a month or two and I was like, wow, you haven't had pistachios since, you know, last month or the month before. That's really good. And I started feeling all good about myself. <laughs> and then I went out and I ate some pistachios. <laughs> part of it in your mind is like, wow, I really accomplished this goal. You know, I'm doing good. And it kind of gets you out of the mindset of still moving forward and you kind of go mm. into that second part of you where whatever you do is okay. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have a similar example. But in regards to the future self, you know, ideal future self, I have a similar experience. You know, it was um, last month in December when I was really feeling very down. Uh, one big motivator, motivator, motivator sorry, it was like imagining my future self, you know. It just felt like very real, like. And somehow, like, staying depressed and giving up was like not giving that future self a chance, like, you know, letting her down, so to speak. That really motivated me to keep on going and just, like, get out of my funk, so to speak. <laughs> so that, that was interesting that, that there are studies about this. And <laughs> anyway, very, very fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I think it comes down yeah, to the pain of letting your future self down has to be stronger than whatever 
feel goodness you get from you know immediate gratification or whatever it is that you want to do. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's hard to uh, achieve that because we're so wired, you know, for immediate gratification that imagining, <clears throat> you know, this will benefit me in one year, two years, ten years, whatever it is. Um, it's we're just not wired for that, you know, from our modern society. And, you know, some, I guess some people are, depending on how they're raised, but uh, I think most people are not. And so it's just kind of hard to get into that um, mindset. I know I'm, I'm not wired that way, and I'm, I'm always amazed and, and kind of awed and uh, really admire people who, who have that long-term thinking and can say, you know, I'm planning this for 10 years out. I'm like, wow, I don't even think that way. Um, <laughs> so, they kind of hold that as an ideal in my mind, and it's uh, I've I found that it's difficult to achieve. Yeah, I used to actually get annoyed. Like, people ask sometimes, like, how do you picture yourself in five years? I'm like, what are you asking me that question for? I don't know what I'm <laughs> yeah, going to be like in five years. <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly the same way. It's kind of like, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, uh, just real quick, I have one more clip from Kelly McGonigal, and it's another writing exercise, and it's very short. It's like a minute long. Um, but So she had mentioned the one previously where you write a letter, uh, you know, to your, to your current self, uh, from your future self. Um, and this one is a little bit more about, like, just what, your, uh, what goals you want to achieve uh, from the present perspective. So let me just play this, and we'll, we'll come back in about a minute. Okay, so here is um, so here's an example from that exercise study that's a little bit broadened out. And uh, this is basically the writing exercise those women were doing that doubled the amount of time they were putting into their goal. Uh, and they were supposed to do this writing exercise every day. The first is to identify your goal and what would be a really positive outcome of that. So you just, you got to get your motivation on board, right? And then, uh, and then what are you going to do to take it? So you set some clearly defined steps. And then you spend some time thinking about how is this not going to happen? When and where and why? Is there anything you can do in advance to prevent that failure? And when failure happens, what are you going to do about it? And you, know, you don't have to actually make it seven full steps like this, but it's a very basic exercise that you can do for any goal. I think of it as being like stress testing a goal. You have a goal, you say you're going to do something, well now, put it to the test and find out how it's going to break, how it's going to fail. So that's it. I mean, you know, like I said, it was a really short clip, but I just think that's interesting. And it's something that I forget on a regular basis um, is that it's uh, not only helpful, but um, probably necessary to do that. Um, you know, even if you can't keep it up on a daily basis to at least do it as much as you remember, um, you know, and write down what your goals are, how you see it happening, what are the obstacles, um, imagine what failure is like, uh, what does that look like, and then, you know, how are you going to get there um, to success? So, it, you know, it, it's just uh, writing is a very effective tool, and like I said, for me, it's something I, I constantly forget to do. So it's, it's a good reminder to keep doing that. Definitely. Yeah, I think, the, I think the question is, where does anticipation come into this? Like, 
Uh, you, you Say when you do that exercise, when you write down um, what your goals are, how you're going to achieve them, how, how you could um, how you could trip up along the way, etc. Um, and it, I guess this links into the future self as well, the idea of your future self. Um, I, I would personally say that it, 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 it would be important to keep in mind um, to try not to be too focused on any exact sort of material outcomes if that makes any mm. sense, like mm -hmm. um, saying, I want to live in this house um, and have this car, you know, it's kind, it's kind of like the secret, uh, mm. you know, like uh, you create your own reality thing. And I think that there's, there's, there's a, a distinction between, um, between almost having faith and um, trying to um, implement ways to change uh, your behavior rather than um, sort of Becoming too focused on any particular material outcome. Do you, do you guys know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It is better to have like a higher aim. You know, if you're focusing on petty things, materialistic things, well, yeah, some people are like that. But well, it depends on your aim. What 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 really you want to accomplish? You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, it it comes down to kind of um, dictating. Uh, for the universe, how things are going to work out. You know, it's kind of like rather than having this kind of idea that, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to think of an example here, but like, you know, like the example you used of like, I want to live in this house, you know, you like set this goal. It's kind of like, why not set something a little bit more general? Like I want to live in a better house, you know, and not kind of dictate um, exactly what that outcome is going to be. Um, kind of leave it much more open so that there's a lot more possibilities that could, could you know, you're, you're leaving open lots of possibilities there rather than dictating exactly what, uh, what, what you think you need. It's kind of like, um, it, it, it's almost a way of kind of avoiding the important lessons that are coming along by dictating exactly how things are going to turn out rather than, you know, if you leave it open, then the possibility for learning along the way is left open as well. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. kind of yeah. reminds me of research that's been done saying that your brain only knows now. It can't really, I mean, you can think abstractly of the future, but the present is the only thing that's really happening right now. And if you come up with a goal, like I want to live in this certain house or have this certain car, your brain can picture that as now, but you you are not now living in that, you know, that certain house or you don't have that car right now. So it kind of negates the whole thing, and it kind of closes off a path maybe. Like I think it's more important to keep general open goals, like you said, Doug, versus you know concentrating on one specific concrete thing that you want to have. You just want to make it so like maybe in the future you'll be better, but leave it up to the universe to decide what that better is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. You don't want to be, you know, an obstacle to to your future self, you know, determine how it should be, you know, and mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a, a great place to uh, leave off. If you guys are cool with this, we'll go to um, Zoya's pet health segment for today. Mm -hmm. Um and then I think when we come back, we will uh, wrap it up. I've got a recipe today for uh, frittata, 
um, mm. which is kind of like a, a quiche sort of thing. Um, so we'll do that after this. And here is uh, Gloria. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to share with you a small talk by Robert G. Smith, creator of Faster EFT and CEO of Skills to Change Institute, about grieving the death of a beloved pet. Grief is a very real emotion that is tough to get over in dealing with the loss of a pet. Many people struggle coping with the overwhelming loss of a pet companion. You are not weird just because you struggle with depression over your pet's health or death. Often people will feel guilty because they have been led to believe that pets are not that important or not worth the emotional outpouring. That is not true and we all need time to process the loss. But it is also important to remember the joy these animals brought into our lives and to honor their gift and their company. So here's the talk. Hello, this is Robert Smith, and I am in uh, Newcastle, Ireland. And um, I received an email from someone if I could do a video about how to deal with the grief and loss of a pet. Basically, the, uh, the email said something like this. Uh, my dog died today. I was gone for eight hours, and it had cancer. How do you deal with the grief and the loss? And he's been suffering for the last couple of days, I guess, about about the event. First, what I would I would the first thing I would do is go back to what you feel about the experience. That means I feel guilty, I feel sad, I feel whatever it is that you feel about this, and you start tapping and releasing the emotions about it. And secondly, you got to make peace with death anyway. You know, um, death is a part of life. And the interesting thing about death, those who have already passed on are okay. It's us. You know, the dog is safe now. The dog has moved on. Its pain is over. And now it's time for us to make peace with it. So what we do is we address our grief and our loss, our loneliness, our feeling of guilt, the feeling of being abandoned, um, and you start addressing and, and addressing those emotions and those feelings. Now, oftentimes, some people have had years of practicing feeling grief. I mean, they, they, I don't know exactly each situation, but a lot of people have a belief about if you if you loved them, you'd grieve their loss. And I disagree with that completely. I believe if you loved them, you'd honor their life and the gifts that they had left you. So my belief system is this: this this dog that you love came into your life and it gave you something many and those are the positive memories the positive emotions positive experiences and then what you do is you would write those down you'd remember those and notice as you remember them the good feelings and the gifts are inside you so that's what we want to do is we want to keep all the good ones release all the bad ones and just honor them by feeling good about their life and what they gave you and the next thing you'd do is is just make peace with it and the next thing you do is you look about think about the death think about the grief think about the loss and long as you make peace with it now oftentimes if you suffered grief and loss from 
watching the dog get ran over or watching the terrorizing death or whatever it is that you have within you because there's many avenues that people have experienced things but you go to that and you tap it out and you change the meaning of it your meaning and the emotions in and around it and as you do that then what will happen is you'll create peace within you and realizing this one fact they are okay and it's okay for you to be okay because if you keep re recalling rehearsing remembering you're doing no good for anyone not even yourself so make peace with it let it go and love yourself and as you love yourself what will happen is you'll open the door for a new loving relationship that means something will happen where you get a new dog a new gift will come in your life and that's just how it's going to happen and so that's that's the key make peace with your pain and as you make peace with the pain, then it opens the door for better relationships, the next relationship. And always feel good when you think about them. And if anything bad comes in that keeps robbing from the joy that they left you, you tap on it and you release it. Because they came in to heal you. They came in to leave you presence. And honor the presence, release the pain. You know, I always say they always come in with two presents, good presence and bad presence. Depending on which one you open will determine how you feel and respond to the rest of your life. And the bad presents are the one with the ugly pictures on it. Don't open it. It usually stinks, too. So just kind of push that aside, throw it in the trash can, go to the one that have all the beautiful pictures and the memories of you and them having a great time. That's what you want. Open those, honor you, honor them, and keep on moving on. Now, you can apply this in many areas and different ways of your life. Just, just remember, everything is, is designed to help you heal. If you find pain, tap out the pain, and as you release the pain, you only honor you, but you honor the presence they left you. And you get to choose which one you want. That's the best thing about this. Let everything be an opportunity to help you heal. When they die, they'll stir up some of your emotions, some of your feelings. And as they stir up, make peace with them. Tap it, let it go, release it. Now, if you don't do that, what you're going to do is you're choosing the bad stuff. And it means you're saying the bad stuff is more important than the good stuff. And if you do that, then you can be really miserable and highly depressed. And by the way, you'll see a lot of dogs walking past me because there's a very popular place that where people walk their dogs. So anyway, this is Robert Smith, and um, I hope this makes sense to you. Again, write your list. Notice what it is that, that supports the pain. Tap out the pain and focus on the good memories. I always say, get you a happy journal. And in this happy journal, write every bit of the good stuff, the things that make you feel good. And, and of course, they didn't take the feel goods away from you. They left them inside you. And as you, they left them inside you, since they left them inside you, it gives you a resource to make more good ones and with other people, other dogs, and not only that, yourself. So, anyway, I hope this helps you. Do write your list. Tap out the pain. Tap out the guilt. And by the way, we all do the best we can based on those references and emotions. You know, and, and so everything works out. This is Robert Smith. I'm here in Ireland. Salancha, which means cheers. Bye.
So what you need is a, uh, a cast iron pan, um, preferably like a medium size. I uh, think, you know, 12 inches or so, 10 to 12 inches. Um, uh, your ingredients are 12 eggs, uh, one half cup of full-fat coconut milk, one pound of Italian sausage, uh, one cup of broccoli diced, one medium red onion diced, two garlic cloves minced, one teaspoon of fresh flat leaf uh, Italian parsley chopped up, and one teaspoon of fresh oregano also chopped. Now, with the uh, broccoli, some people don't handle broccoli well, so you can leave that out, um, but if you do, you can include it. Um, so in a large mixing bowl, uh, beat the eggs and the coconut milk together. Um, then in your cast iron skillet, brown the sausage over medium heat. And you can also do this with bacon, too. A lot of times I'll either do it with sausage or bacon or both, uh, which is also nice. Um, <clears throat> then with a, uh, with a slotted spoon or with a strainer of some kind, transfer your sausage from the skillet uh, to a paper towel-covered plate. Um, to drain the fat from the skillet, set that aside, and keep that for future use. To keep about two tablespoons, or I'll take two, two tablespoons of that fat and put it back into the skillet. Um, saute the broccoli, onion, and garlic until the onion pieces get translucent, so that's about six minutes. Then return the sausage to the skillet, add the parsley and oregano, combine everything together. Uh, whisk the eggs and the coconut milk again until they're really frothy and foamy. Um, and then pour the freshly whisked, whisked mixture over the top of the sausage and put the skillet into the oven. Uh, bake it for 20 minutes at 400 degrees Fahrenheit until the top just starts to brown, uh, and then take it out and let it cool for about five minutes. Um, so obviously if you're using cast iron skillet for this, be very careful when you take it out of the oven. Make sure that you have a towel or a, or a heat pad of some kind, because um, I have done that before <laughs> accidentally like oh it's done and then grab it for a man. Um, so just be careful about that but it's it's very good um it's kind of like a quiche um you know of course without the crust but then you can slice this up into like uh pie slices and uh and serve that with breakfast it's also good for dinner honestly mm. yeah we we've actually just been making something like that as well but um for those for those people who can't tolerate egg whites, uh, we just use egg yolks, and you can actually, if you add a few extra, then um, then it turns out just as well, and it's it is really good for sure. breakfast. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, I've done a lot of frittata yeah, in the past too, and I've always found that uh, the more you beat the eggs, the the kind of the fluffier that it'll get. Um, I've actually even used an electric mixer to to whip up the eggs before, just to to really get them. Um, really kind of beaten up and have some some air incorporated in there, and it, it puffs up so much. It's an, it's it's crazy. It is going to like overflow the pan. It's it's puffing up so much. Yeah, it's quite good, and it's uh, it's simple. I mean, <clears throat> you know, browning the the or cooking the sausage and then get everything into the pan. It really doesn't take that long. You're looking at a total maybe 20 minutes at most, mm -hmm. uh, and then of course 20 minutes of baking time. But um, yeah, it's a it's a quick breakfast. It's great for people who um, say if they're, if they're low on time, like um, sometimes before going to work, like I don't have enough time to cook my breakfast, but what we do is we just do like a big thing of uh, this type of quiche frittata thing. Uh, we use sausages and bacon, and it, you get like four days worth of breakfast um, for, for both me and my girlfriend, and mm. 
you know, it just saves so much time and it's really, really quick and really simple. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, there you have it. And um, so that's our, our show for today. We hope that everybody was able to take something away from that. Um, thanks yeah. to our chat participants and everybody who tuned in. Um, <clears throat> and be sure to check out the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, uh, The Truth Perspective, tomorrow at, uh, I believe they're still at 2 p.m. Is that correct? Eastern time. That's right. But That's right. and behind the headlines on Sunday, which is now at uh, noon Eastern time on Sunday. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, and we will see you uh, next week. Have a great weekend. Bye, Bye everybody. everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys.